Hi, I'm Grant Armstrong, and I get to serve as directing pastor here at St. John's United Methodist Church in Edwardsville, Illinois. We exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. Our desire is to be a beacon of faith and service, focusing our passions and gifts to reflect Christ's love to the world. You're invited to join us each week at 9 a.m. for a time of traditional worship or at 11 a.m. for contemporary worship. Thanks for joining us for this online version of the sermon. This morning's scripture is from Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. About this time, a man and a woman from the tribe of Levi got married. The woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She saw that he was a special baby and kept him hidden for three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she got a basket made of papyrus reeds and waterproofed it with tar and pitch. She put the baby in the basket and laid it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile River. The baby's sister then stood at a distance, watching to see what would happen to him. Soon Pharaoh's daughter came down to bathe in the river, and her attendants walked along the river bank. When the princess saw the basket among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it for her. When the princess opened it, she saw the baby. The little boy was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This must be one of the Hebrew children, she said. Then the baby's sister approached the princess. Should I go and find one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you, she asked. Yes, do, the princess replied. So the girl went and called the baby's mother. Take this baby and nurse him for me, the princess told the baby's mother. I will pay you for your help. So the woman took her baby home and nursed him. Later, when the boy was older, his mother brought him back to Pharaoh's daughter, who adopted him as her own son. The princess named him Moses, for she explained, I lifted him out of the water. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Are there any fans of the Marvel Cinematic Universe in the congregation this morning? Okay, so I see one. All right, this is going to, okay, maybe two. This is going to land really well then. There is a scene at the end of the movie Avengers Endgame that reminds me of this story from the beginning of Exodus. And if you haven't seen it, you have had two and a half years, so I'm not going to feel really terrible if I'm spoiling anything for you. Just the part where Marvel marches out what the comics refer to as the A-Force, which is this all-female squad of heroes that come to one another's aid in a fairly perilous moment in the show. Spider-Man gets knocked down with some very important world-saving cargo, and Captain Marvel shows up to carry it farther. And when arguably one of the most powerful superheroes in the universe is asked if she can make it, a number of the other female and heroes, including Wanda, Pepper, Shuri, Okoye, Wasp, Gamora, Nebula, Mantis, and Valkyrie, they all show up and basically say, don't worry, we've got her back. They flex and mug for the camera in this gratuitous girl power scene that was pretty cool and basically gave the audience a nod to something that insiders would know about. And this scene was, con it was criticized by some people as being a bit contrived and unrealistic. And I just want to acknowledge the nerve it takes to criticize as unrealistic when the premise of the film starts with time-traveling superheroes and aliens battling for control of magic stones to reverse the effects of a snap that turned half of the universe's population into dust. If powerful women working together is where you're unwilling to suspend disbelief, I'm not sure I can accept that as valid criticism. Today's scripture is a powerful scene like that in our Bible. It's a scene, a story of a group of women, not superhuman, but this group 
inadvertently working together to use their resources to deliver some very important world-saving cargo to safety against incredible odds and a very powerful opponent. God moved in the lives of these women who didn't seek to be heroes, but who acted with courage and compassion so that the work of salvation would not cease. Not if they could do something about it. And they did. They were all a part of a vital, nurturing community. And that takes us to our first lesson this morning. Not everything is working in favor of the nurturing community. Not everything is working in favor of the nurturing community. We're going to go back to Genesis, I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 1, verse 15. It talks about how Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, gave this order to the Hebrew midwives, Shipra and Puah. When you help the Hebrew women as they give birth, watch as they deliver. If the baby is a boy, kill him. If it's a girl, let her live. But because the midwives feared God, they refused to obey the king's orders. They allowed the boys to live too. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives. Why have you done this, he demanded. Why have you allowed the boys to live? And the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, the midwives replied. They're more vigorous and have their babies so quickly that we cannot get there in time. There are some things in the Exodus acquisition of land stories that get a little rough for our hopes of reading a clear-cut, pure moral action in this. In the coming plagues, there's great destruction unleashed by the mighty God of the Hebrew people. And when they move to acquire the promised land, they're commanded to clear the occupants out by violent means. And even in this segment, there are a couple of things that seem a little murky. First, let's address the part where the midwives outwit Pharaoh by deceit. They lie to the king of Egypt so the Hebrew women don't have to lose their sons to genocide. I really like to reinforce that we should always strive to do the right things in right ways. Integrity and honesty matter, and the ends don't always justify the means. But I think Scripture points to that again and again. Yet there are stories like this where, in this instance, the women play the trope of the clever tricksters to lampoon the mighty and powerful Pharaoh. The most powerful man in the world at that time could get fooled by, in the status of the time, a couple of lowly midwives. This would have come across as comedy for people who were reading it for ages. But it's not just the deceit, it's the juxtaposition of the power structure. For the earliest audiences, these stories wouldn't have been read as girl power stories because women and girls had no power. The emphasis on the role of women in the downfall of Pharaoh was to shame the powerful. Early audiences of Exodus wouldn't have read this with sisters are doing it for themselves playing as a soundtrack in the background. It would be read like a bully saying, ha ha, Egypt's fancy king got tricked by a bunch of girls. The literary formula at the time was used primarily to shame and to poke fun. Fortunately, we don't have to read it that way today. We can absolutely read this as God calling people from humble status into immortal remembrance because they were willing to participate in this narrative of salvation. These midwives, Shipra and Pua, are now enshrined in memory eternally. Imagine the liberated Hebrew people sitting around the fires of camps before this story was put to writing and retelling these stories of these brave women fibbing to Pharaoh about their absence during the births, but emphasizing the part about how vigorous and hardy the Hebrew women are. The people hearing these stories would absolutely eat that up. And I'm certain there were people around those fires, former slaves who felt like they had no status and no standing with whatever God looked upon them with mercy, and they thought 
Maybe there's a greater purpose for me too. Maybe I have something to offer that might change the world. And I think that's still true for us who hear the story today. Because we still live in a time when there are plenty of forces working against nurturing community. I know I've appreciated the uptick in family time over this past year, probably more than my kids have, but I don't know that I'd say anything about this past year and a half has made living as a nurturing community in our family, in a church, or in a community much simpler. It's taken a lot of determination. It's taken adaptability, a lot of creativity. It's required some risks, honestly. Between a horrible virus, political turmoil, and the insatiable appetite of capitalism for productivity, there were plenty of things that could have worked against extending care and compassion towards one another. We could have all slipped into a very insular, protective mode. But instead, I've seen a lot of people hear the call to stand up and show that their spirit has not been extinguished by the hardship. Though they may be tired and worn down, they remain inspired to help and to encourage, not despite the circumstances, but because that is the thing that is needed the most. The people who are willing to listen to the Holy Spirit voice that says, you've been put here to make an impact in something besides your sofa. And they respond in faith. Because it takes great faith to contribute to the nurturing community. And that takes us to our second lesson. Nurturing community requires a great deal of trust in God. Nurturing community requires a great deal of trust in God. Now moving on to Exodus chapter 2. About this time, a man and woman from the tribe of Levi got married. The woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She saw that he was a special baby and kept him hidden for three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she got a basket made of papyrus reeds and waterproofed it with tar and pitch. She put the baby in the basket and laid it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile River. The baby's sister then stood at a distance watching to see what would happen to him. I remember one thing very clearly about my first day of preschool. For many of the kids, this was their first experience of being separated, dropped off in the care of someone else. I had been very, I had very present and involved parents who also happened to have full-time jobs when I was a very young child, and that meant I spent several hours a day under the care of a family friend, a woman who happened to be our nanny. And so I'd gotten over my drop-off anxieties by the time I was starting preschool, but I saw a couple of kids really crying in sadness, maybe in fear. And I remember asking my mother, why are these kids crying? Was there something about school that was scarier than what I had come to understand? And my mom explained to me that this was the first time that these kids would be without their mommy or daddy nearby. And I just didn't get it. I didn't get the anxiety at that point. It's not because I was mature or anything, I just had some practice with that, and it turned out fine. Except for I'm pretty sure every once in a while my nanny snuck a little bit of whiskey in her Pepsi in the middle of the day, and I have no recollection of how irksome I was at that time of my life, so I'm inclined to withhold judgment. It was the late 70s, standards were different at that time, I've got the stories to tell about it, and life goes on. But as a parent, I've had an opportunity to experience that drop-off scenario a few times over now. And it wasn't as easy for me as a dad as it seemed to be for me as a three-year-old. Entrusting my child to the care of a stranger didn't feel quite as reassuring as it sounds like it would be. 
That was not terribly the case for us, however. Our kids all went to church-based preschools. I knew every one of their teachers, and for two of the three of our kids, I was in the exact same building where they were going to school. If you were looking for a more reassuring process, I'm not sure where you could find it. Even still, it's a bit unsettling. These moments in life involve some degree of handoff, and it requires that we trust other human beings to care for our family in ways that maybe isn't equal to the way that we care for our family, but we hope is pretty darn close. But that's not where we ultimately find the strength and peace to participate in nurturing community. Whether we're entrusting someone to the care of another or we're providing care to someone else. For example, whenever our new driver in the family hits the road, I have to trust God for her safety, though I'm skeptical of other drivers. When our soon-to-be teenager gets on YouTube, I have to trust God for her safety, though I'm really uncertain about some of the people who post. When our son hops on his bike to ride around the neighborhood, I have to trust that God is looking out for him when I'm not sure that every driver is. Do I still get nervous? Yes. But I try to move quickly from nervous to prayerful. Do we still do our part to supervise and help to keep our kids safe? I'm pretty sure that they would all tell you, yes, way too much. But participating in a nurturing community requires trust. It did for Moses' mother. She's later in Exodus named as Jochebed. And the amount of trust, the level of faith she possessed that allowed her to bear Moses, hide him from the person that ordered him, that ordered to kill Hebrew boys and kept him hidden for three months. And then to set him afloat in a basket on the Nile, expecting that God would do something for that special child. That kind of faith is astronomical. And it was well-founded. Her trust in God met with God's faithfulness in some amazing ways. And that takes us to lesson three. Personal compassion can have an impact well beyond helping an individual. Personal compassion can have an impact well beyond helping an individual. Verse 5, soon Pharaoh's daughter came down to bathe in the river and her attendants walked along the riverbank. When the princess saw the basket among the reeds, she sent her maids to get it for her. When the princess opened it, she saw the baby. The little boy was crying and she felt sorry for him. This must be one of the Hebrew children, she said. Then the baby's sister approached the princess. Should I go and find one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you, she asked. Yes, do, the princess replied. And so the girl went and called the baby's mother. Take this baby and nurse him for me, the princess told the baby's mother. I will pay you for your help. So the woman took her baby home and nursed him. In 1855, Edward Kimball was a Sunday school teacher at the Mount Vernon Congregational Church in Boston. A new student came to visit the class one day who didn't yet trust in Christ. Kimball visited this student at work one day, and that student, Dwight L. Moody, gave his heart to Jesus right there in his workplace. Because of the ministry impact of Moody, J. Wilbur Chapman would come to give his life to Jesus. Chapman went on to preach revivals, and a former baseball player was hired to do some prep before the events. Billy Sunday learned from Chapman how to deliver an effective sermon and took over the revivals after Chapman's retirement. Sunday held an event in Charlotte, North Carolina, which gave birth to a prayer and fellowship group. That group hosted a revival in 1934 where a man named Mordecai Ham came to preach, and in attendance was a farm boy known to his friends by the name of Billy Frank, also known as Billy Graham. 
Billy Graham offered his heart to Christ through Ham's message and would go on to share the good news of Jesus Christ with an estimated 2.2 billion people over his lifetime. Could that all have happened if Edward Kimball wasn't a faithful and caring Sunday school teacher nearly 100 years before? I'm, not, I'm glad we don't have to find out. See, our acts of faithfulness, no matter how insignificant they may seem to us, can have a domino effect, a ripple effect through history. And we may sometimes feel like our compassion and contributions to the nurturing community don't make a difference. We may not see that difference right away. We may not see that difference in our lifetime. The payoff might not come for generations later, but our faithfulness and compassion get to play a part in it. Do you think Pharaoh's daughter imagined she was helping a baby be reunited with his birth mother through nursing? Did she know that she was protecting a Hebrew child who would deliver God's people from slavery and captivity? Did Moses' sister know that she was seeing to care for the one who would meet face to face with God on Mount Sinai and receive the covenant of the law? Did Yochaved understand just how special this boy would be in the history of God's plan of salvation? I'm pretty sure they didn't have the full picture. But they were faithful in sharing compassion through the opportunity that God presented to them. They wouldn't see the results in that moment. They wouldn't get to see the promised land that God would provide for them. They simply did their faithful best to be a part of a nurturing community in their lifetimes. And their faithfulness impacts us still today. Verse 10, it said, Later when the boy was older, his mother brought him back to the Pharaoh's daughter who adopted him as her own son. The princess named him Moses. For she explained, I lifted him out of the water. Because all these things happened in the community that came together in compassion, the dominoes were being set for Jesus to deliver us from slavery to sin and death and shame. And so we continue to be people of compassion, to do for someone what you wish you could do for everyone. And in our faithful response to a trustworthy God, we have no idea what a powerful ripple God can send through our lives and into eternity. But we know God's given us the opportunity to be faithful as part of that community today. Let's pray together. Loving God, we are so grateful that you make our lives significant. It's not the acclaim we receive. It's not the power that's been entrusted to us, the titles and influence and riches we might amass, but the opportunity to be faithful, even in ways that may seem to us insignificant, because you are the one who gives significance through history. God, the acts of compassion and kindness we show today, Lord, we may not think it makes a great difference, but it could be setting the stage setting up the dominoes to fall in such a way that revival will break out, that people will be set free from captivity, that more and more people will have the opportunity to hear the good news that there is a God who loves them, who cares deeply for them, and who can save them now and for eternity. Lord, help us to be faithful and to trust in your faithfulness. And we'll leave the outcomes to you. We love you because you've loved us so richly first. All in the powerful name of Christ our Lord. Amen.